0: Before we start the show, we just wanted to remind you that our 11th After Dark is right around the corner next week. We're really looking forward to it, and it is, of course, on the 11th of March. When else could we have it? If you have tickets, we can't wait to see you there. If you don't, you can listen back to all the fun and games on Friday 20th of March. And to give you a tease of the show itself, we'll be holding a rant bucket during the show, where our hosts have one minute to rant on a topic pulled out of a hat. If you want to get involved, drop us some suggestions that you'd like to hear the team rant about on social, at fintech insiders or our LinkedIn page. All right, on with the show. From 11FS, I'm Ross Gallagher, and this is Fintech Insider News. This week we bring you the Dow going up, Robinhood going down, Banking competition remedies faces backlash, and one very generous payment CEO. All this and much, much more on today's show. So welcome to episode 407 of FinTech Insider. I'm Ross Gallagher, and today I'm joined by my wonderful colleague and co-host, Sarah Kishansky. How are you doing today, Sarah?
1: I'm good. I'm good. I feel like it's been forever since I've done this. It's a real
0: pleasure to have you. And you are always my favourite host to record with. Don't tell anyone. This isn't going out, is it?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, who else did you say that to? I haven't (laughs) listened to last week's yet.
0: (laughs) Oh dear, I should probably move on before I dig an even bigger hole. Um, As always, we're joined by some awesome guests. Making our FinTech Insider News debut, we have for Hannah Drain, Head of Legal and Compliance at Flux. Hello. Welcome to the show. It's so good to have you.
2: Thank you. It's great to be here. Still adjusting to the headphone microphone setup.
0: (laughs) I know, it's weird to hear what you sound like to the rest of the world. Yep. (laughs) All right, and making welcome return visits, we have Hussein Kasai, CEO of OnFido. Hello. Pleasure to have you, Hussein. And the wonderful Ed Burks, global EGM of Financial Partnerships at Zero. Welcome back, Ed. Thanks for having me. Amazing. Okay, um, let's get started. And our first story today comes from TechCrunch and concerns Robinhood facing an outage as the Dow surges. So, users of the fee-free trading app found themselves locked out of their accounts for over 12 hours on one of the year's busiest trading days. On Wednesday, Robinhood's co-founders attributed the outage to an unprecedented load of traffic that resulted from the Dow Jones Industrial Average's largest point gain since 2009. Uh, Customers have since threatened a class-action lawsuit with one user reporting a loss of $450,000. Uh, Robin Hood has denied that the outage was related to a leap day bug. It has also said it will award compensation for the glitch on a case-by-case basis. So... I guess one potential cause of the outages could be just the high trading volumes that have accompanied highly volatile markets over the past month, rather than as they they have denied a sort of leap day bug. Um, those users will have been looking to capitalize trade on stocks that were hit in the last week's string of losses due to investor worries over the impact that the C-word coronavirus would have had on the global economy. Uh, and the outage came amid the markets attempted a rebound from the worst week for stocks since the financial crash. So. I guess my first question is, is this simply down to high trading volumes due to unprecedented market volatility, or does this point to wider issues around the sort of stability and 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 resilience of these systems?
1: so there was there was a couple of things they said when like their first response was it was unprecedented load was what they first said, and they went into a bit more detail. And then the other thing is as well, it went down on Monday and then it went out again on Tuesday. And then they've since said that it's um, there's further outages likely. So it says, as our engineering team works to upgrade our infrastructure, we may experience additional brief outages. But we're now better positioned to more quickly resolve them. So it does sound like it was more than just heavy load to me. Uh, it sounds like there was something else that went wrong in there as well. Um, heavy load did affect a load of other uh, online well, a load of other trading platforms, actually, Vanguard and Fidelity. I think they do a lot of their work online, but it just generally um, it affected the the providers of that. Um, I mean, Robinhood is having to compensate some customers. That's always bad. Uh, so, they, Some of them are getting billing credits, and some of them are getting, um, so premium members will get three months' worth of service for free, so they won't have to pay the $5 fee. Um, I think the, the sort of important point here, though, aside from the technology, I think the technology is an important point, but I think more than that, it is almost kind of, is Robinhood describing what it does accurately? So if you're buying into Robinhood and you're buying into this premise that you can buy and sell stocks and shares exactly as and when you want them, is it actually doing that? And can it actually do that? And how is it selling itself? And I think there's a lot of questions that have previously been asked about Robinhood actually doing things in batches, selling things at the end of the day, which means you're not actually getting the best price for them if you went somewhere else. Um, and I, I think this kind of, to me anyway, um, builds into that picture of are, are, are they actually describing themselves well? Are they saying what they actually do accurately? Um, and even more than that, which is a point that's been made about these, these platforms and there are many others repeatedly, um, do people actually understand how they work? You know, does that people actually understand how A, the platform works and B, how the stock market works more broadly?
3: Do you know the bit that um, I found fascinating about this, we, we should obviously talk about the platform stability and, and, and the growing pains of a lot of these um, platform businesses, and um, was just how somebody can claim to have lost $450,000, presumably on trades that they obviously would have done but didn't do. Mm. Um, It's an incredible figure, isn't it? Yeah. well, But, but, you know, pick a number. Um, I can't see many professional traders picking Robinhood as a platform. And, and you know, you'd question – how well informed somebody would be to be, uh, you know, trading in significant volume volume on a platform like that, and I don't think they represent themselves to that kind of a market. Um, I think what we are seeing with um, a lot of these businesses, and closer to home, you look at the the kind of the way that people like Monzo and Starling and Revolut are communicating with their with their users. Um, it's very non-traditional bank. Um, And let's face it, anybody who's running a cloud business, anything at at scale slips up occasionally. There are problems. It's a a fact of life. Uh, And I think it's how you then represent those, how transparent you are, um, how human you are actually in communicating with your uh, customer population that really matters. Um, and, And, you know, to me, it looks like they've been pretty transparent as much as they can be.
1: It was interesting when the there was a blog post um that went up on on their site which purported to be from the founders was how it was uh, communicated or reported in in quite a few uh, places which makes it sound like uh they're trying to not. be human or was it actually just a PR you know person typing furiously and sticking a picture of the founder on the top
0: Yeah and um Sarah, do you think it's important to to highlight that point that the, the other more established um, providers like Vanguard, Fidelity also had issues? Because I think the natural comparison is to look at a, a Robinhood and say, well, the platform isn't stable enough. It hasn't been stress tested to the same degree as, as, as some of those more established providers. So actually, you know, I, I think putting a spotlight on that um, – the fact that some of those more more established providers had issues as well is important, right?
1: I, I think it does, absolutely. For the industry, it raises huge questions. I mean, these, these kind of volumes of trading, you tend to only see in severe circumstances or, or spe- special circumstances or however you want to term it. Um, but given so much of this industry is now processed you know, li- literally using computer power. And it obviously this industry is one of the first ones to start doing automatic money movement and automatic trading. You know, they've had 30, 40 years of, of using machine learning at its most basic and AI to, to issue um, trades and, and command trades and all that kind of stuff. I don't understand fully in detail. I know they've been doing it a long time. Um, but, but yes, I think it points to questions about the wider industry and whether the technology is keeping up with the, the current economic circumstances and actually customer behavior because as more people... Do start to do individual trades. It becomes even more complex than when you just had x number of people on a trading floor trying to push huge volumes backwards and forwards.
0: And 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 I think going beyond that as well, um, I think Robinhood in particular has made no um, no no bones about the fact that they have ambitions to become a sort of full service financial institution. Um, they recently rolled out a uh, some cash management accounts, um, interest paying. Um, and, and no doubt have, have other products in the works. So I wonder if this kind of latest calamity, which which also isn't the first, they've had, you know, the sort of free money glitch and, and, and some other issues. I wonder if, if that's likely to damage those ambitions.
1: Just, sorry, one final point. Does it raise questions they've taken their eye off the ball? Have they been too distracted? Because they had two goes at, at launching the interest-paying accounts or interest-bearing accounts, and that was a problem actually, to go back to Ed's point, with, with actually marketing and communication, that they marketed it in a way that the regulator went, uh uh, uh no, no, you can't do that, you can't say that. So have They've been distracted and and not paid enough attention to their core product and core infrastructure?
0: Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, Um,
2: And to add, I think on the transparency side, yes, they have been quite transparent, but they could have done more, in my opinion. I think doing small things like publishing a post mortem report that's shareable with the public would be amazing for individuals like us to actually see what caused the outage um, and. You know, if they didn't stress test enough, maybe they can say, We didn't stress stress test enough. Yeah, I think Monzo's said those exact words, hasn't it? Previously, yeah, yeah.
0: And to Ed's point, I think being upfront about like those underlying causes around these issues, I think, is quite important. Um, One, I suppose, example um, where they weren't quite so transparent, um, Sarah, to your point, in their first attempt to launch these uh, interest-bearing accounts, they signed eight hundred and fifty thousand people up to a wait list before then getting the feedback from the regulator and just quietly um, taking down all of the information about those uh, those those accounts and just sort of moving on without much of a uh, a nod to that at all. So um, I guess it's an ongoing thing though, right? Like the, being the human point um, that you made, Ed, humans don't always get things right. Mm. Okay, um, our next story comes from the Financial Times and concerns the BCR backlash mounting over um, Metro and Nationwide. So bank executives have criticized the banking competition remedies this week after two grant winners failed to meet key targets. Last Wednesday, Metro Bank announced it would return 50 million pounds of its 120 million pound first prize grant as it scaled back its expansion plans. Then on Friday, Nationwide also announced it too is underperforming on expectations. The controversy has raised questions about how the BCR awards funds and whether the target it assigned were realistic. And the FT quotes one anonymous bank board member who called the process ill-judged, non-transparent, and probably most cussingly a pretty good example of how not to do it. I'm going to go to our sort of resident BCR <laughs> expert in the room, Sarah, and just ask, um, it, it, what are your thoughts on the success of the scheme so far? And should we now be looking seriously at how these are grants? As at as, as how these grants were awarded,
1: we should have been looking seriously at how they were granted when they were first granted. Um, there was an awful lot of um, opacity, opaqueness, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. mm, one of those words, um, in, in how the awards were granted in the first place. Um, you know, if you look at Metro Bank, it, you know, when it won the, the, the money, there were questions because it was in the middle of an accounting scandal, which basically said that, long story short, they basically had. Poor, uh, misunderstood the risk of some of their loans so they overstated how much capital they had but part of uh, Metrobank's commitment was that it was going to put two pounds into the pot for every pound BCR gave it now for a bank in the middle of an accounting scandal so first of all it can't add its own numbers and second of all it's not got as much money as it thought it had why would you think it could you know, um, meet those commitments. And this
0: is one of the major criticisms around yeah. where are those targets and where those promises realistic.
1: And the second thing is, um, so that's one problem, but I think the, the second problem actually is is the, the primary problem. So Godfrey Cromwell, I'm not sure if he's related to the other Cromwell, we've talked about it before, um, BCR chairman says, the BCR doesn't actually have to, to encourage customers to to, a, to to use a switching scheme, which is the other part of it. So trying to encourage customers to switch from the four big banks to these challenges or even assess the fitness of the applicants because BCR are engine drivers whose role is only to apply the terms of the agreement with the European Commission. Um, and then the Treasury basically says it's not our problem either because BCR is entirely independent. So you've got an organisation that's handing out this money, which is uh, – partly actually taxpayers' money when you think where it came from, it came from RBS, and nobody's accountable. Literally yeah. nobody. Everybody is, is sitting here going... There
0: is a complete lack of accountability. Everybody's yeah. washed their hands. And, of course, as well, for the European <laughs> Commission to intervene now would be politically... Oh God! Be suicidal, right?
1: Well, I think the European Commission would probably quite enjoy it, but um, I mean, for, for, for Metro, that was a big question. For Nationwide, it's a little bit different. I think Nationwide just kind of overstretched itself. Um, basically, it hadn't, it, it had, you know, again, it made huge commitments that it's struggling to meet. Its commitments were perhaps more realistic when compared to Metro. But on the other hand, basically, they came out and said, "Oh, we haven't tested it enough yet, so we need another year, yeah. another year for the first bit, and then everything else will be delayed." So, again, no accountability, huge problem, lack of looking at the commitments. I mean, the fact that he comes out and says we didn't have, even have to assess their suitability, we just had to hand the money out. What, what was the point of the commitments? Unless I've completely misunderstood something. But I feel, I feel like this is, yeah.
0: And and to your point around opacity, so the BCR has refused to give any details on its decision-making process. Mazar, um, the, the consulting firm which was appointed to monitor the, the, the BCR process, does not interrogate the the judgments, so I think I think that accountability point is is, is the main issue here and is becoming so 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 clear.
2: Yeah.
3: Uh, so uh, I actually I, I should confess that um, zero was a beneficiary through the process, so I have to kind of state that position. Uh, we we um, it's all uh, your may, fault. Uh, <laughs> we, 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 only to the tune of three million pounds, but we we uh, partnered with I um in in their application, which was successful. Um, do you know it's a difficult problem to solve? The uh, the background of this, as, as I guess most people will know now, was uh, really RBS's failure to divest themselves of, uh, of what was uh, effectively the Williams and Glynn assets. Um, and I can imagine that there were some you know, a lot of scratching of heads um, when uh, the regulators were kind of thinking about how they would meet um, the commitments they had to the EU that 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 that, that, that were just not coming to pass um, that the way that they should. Uh, well, frankly, when I've travelled around the world and told people about this process, they kind of think you're making it up, right? I mean, yeah. it, it, it was it was really contrived do and you,
0: difficult. Do you think it feels like a knee-jerk reaction to the failed Williams and Glynn divestment, and that it, it wasn't it wasn't properly thought through?
1: It, it feels that, but it also feels to me, sorry to interrupt, archaic. Like, the, I mean, the chap's name being Godfrey Cromwell just, you yeah. know, is that
3: He, he assume, could be a millennial. You never know. <laughs> he could
1: be. Um, but just sorry to. to, yeah, to so the, the point being, yes, it was a knee reaction, but also they didn't even think about how to modernize the process. It was very old fashioned.
3: Yeah, do you know, I, I think if you speak to, um, and, and again, look, we, we work closely with a number of the, um, uh, the, the the firms that were successful through the process. There was an awful lot of rigor actually in in the submissions that we were close to, um, and I think uh, firms like Kodak that won and, and Fluidly you, you, were taking the, the commitments really, really seriously, and um, and so it would be, I guess, a shame for. Uh, a lack of credibility with the process, which, as I say, I think was probably trying to solve a very difficult problem in a short timescale, to kind of reflect negatively on some of the participants who I think have been incredibly rigorous in in kind of trying to trying to uh, I, con, con, you know align with the spirit of the thing.
1: As you say, I completely agree. I think that a line should be drawn between the big banks who won and the ink, the fintechs who won. Sorry.
3: So we actually
4: applied, and it was a somewhat robust process, in that there were a series of different stages and it seems as though they were doing a thorough job and asked the relevant questions. From the outside it was a little bit of a strange scheme in that 425 million dedicated to in, in some ways increasing the use of technology and encouraging SMEs to essentially switch accounts. Our angle on this was naturally that you need to help make it easier for these especially micro SMEs to prove their identities so that they're able to switch more effectively. It was a bit of a head-scratcher as to when the winners came out and not full understanding what their strategies are to actually effectively make a material dent in, in sort of the purposes of this. But the broader picture in that the objectives and the ways at which they were looking to achieve them were not clear. So once that is not clear, how are you going to assess if it's been a success or not? So if it's,
3: have,
4: yeah.
1: If you don't have success criteria laid out, how can you judge if it's been a success or not? And as you say, there were were none, I don't think, for any of the pools.
0: Absolutely right. And I I think we're kind of sitting now unanimously around the table saying, at first glance, it looks to have been more of a failure than a success. And I wonder where that leaves us in terms of competition in the SME banking market, which was the ultimate objective, right, was to increase that competition.
3: So my job clearly this evening is to just be super positive about everything. But, um, you know, maybe a bit of a silver lining through the process. Do you not just think it kind of poured... um, fuel on the flames of the UK fintech activity. Um, it was one of a number of, of high-profile streams of activity that just seemed to catalyze a lot of focus. And um, I think, uh, you know, it's it's dropped um uh, we, we we did some rough calculations, but it's something like 10x the typical kind of investment that would be made in a in a in a year across the big banks, for example, in um, digital banking and, and SME banking. Um, it's it's just a, a huge catalyst to investment, which I think has done a lot of good for London and a lot of good more broadly for the fintech scene.
4: I it, I just want oh sorry, I was going to um, respectfully disagree. So was <laughs> <all> I. <right>. So <laughs> you go
1: first, and then I'll.
4: <laughs> it, it, it definitely poured. Um, some stuff in, but it's just like £425 million worth. And if you are looking at essentially helping SMEs, the majority of the SMEs that need help are micro SMEs. So whether this funding were to be used for deferred tax payments or lending, there are so many fintechs that are really effective at lending funds. It's a question of what more could have been done and what's been the opportunity cost. Giving such large checks to already very large banks expecting innovation, I don't know if from the outset it was deemed to succeed or not.
1: So to my point was going to be along those lines, and as well being that I, well not you know I'm, I'm still cautiously optimistic, but just pouring money into a black hole. Just if those banks are investing and it's just going into a black hole, and and as Nationwide has proved, it hasn't been able to move anywhere near as quickly as it would have liked to. You know it, that money is burnt through what's it spending now. If it's, I haven't seen. I haven't seen any actual innovation of the back of this yet, and if until I see that, I don't know how successful we can say that investment has been. Yeah. I, I
2: completely agree. I think the main objective of this was to boost competition in the business banking space, and I'm not sure we've done that yet. or yet for me to see.
4: <laughs> well, with the likes of the smaller ones, like I walk- I do believe that that the small, the benefits that will come will come from the smaller tickets uh, awards to the innovative ones, and therefore you'd kind of think that if the larger banks were looking to innovate, they typically have the funding to do that anyway. So it was holding them back. Do you know Whereas what's interesting it should be a good on that lesson. As well? My, my hope is, is that this is not taken as a way to not do these kind of schemes in the future, but preferably investing more in those who have a track record of
3: innovating.
0: Yeah, and and, and I think what's interesting as well is don't forget that this 50000000 million that's been returned has to be reallocated. And yeah. what's, <laughs> it gonna, what's it going to do to people's confidence in, in in the process, you know, what we've seen so far? Okay, I'm going to move us on. Um, Our next story comes from TechCrunch and is to do with Thought Machine's planned U.S. expansion after an £83 million raise. So the cloud technology company already serves companies like Lloyd's Banking Group and Atom Bank in Europe. Now it will open a stateside office to continue developing its vault platform, which offers checking, savings, loan, credit card and mortgage products. While the company didn't disclose a valuation, TechCrunch estimated that its latest round puts it between 220 and $320 million. It also disclosed that Thought Machine has declared bankruptcy once, but that this was for organizational purposes only. So I'm going to throw this one out into the room. What do we think about this one?
1: I mean, it's why the US is my question. Because um, everybody's going to the US. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but that doesn't mean every. Oh, just because, you know, everybody else jumps off a cliff doesn't mean you have to jump off a cliff. Uh, the
4: US is not a cliff.
1: <laughs> um, it depends who you are. It depends who you are. And my point would be that in the US, you have some very established bank, core banking providers that have come out in the last six to 12 months with their own versions of this. You've got Jack Henry's Bank Anywhere, mm-hmm. which is particularly targeted at community banks. They say they can stand up a new digital bank in 90 days. It's modular. You know, you can pick and choose the bits you want. FIS has its core on demand, which is pretty much the same. Uh, Temenos has one that I can never remember the name of, but it's an SAS cloud-based modular solution <laughs> that does the same idea then you've got startups like Mambu that have already kind of got a, a foothold out there. So um, I, I don't I just question the market. So if you look at others like um, 10X, for example, they've they've done some work in the UK, but they've also looked to Australia and Singapore and sort of th- that's kind of where they're playing. And, and they seem to be less, as far as I can tell, less competition on the ground there. So it, I have no problem with them raising money. I think this is a huge problem that needs to be solved. And I think these players can definitely help big banks solve those core problems that they have to do before we can see the innovation that we want to see from, you know, on, on all ends. But I just, I, I wonder why the US market, that's my question. And I don't think it's just because Monzo's gone there.
4: No, I think you're right. It is. For most fintechs and companies like their regtech the direct tech, I suppose, uh, in their space, the U.S. is the big prize and is one that is worth doing whatever you need to in order to win, especially with investors like they have. It's great, first of all, to see them getting more recognition. I think this has been one of the companies that has not, they've not been under the radar, but definitely have not received as much attention as they deserve. And uh, the, I suppose, drive to the U.S. in the large part comes from the demand and the need because you have so many banks in the US that are running off legacy systems. So good on them. If they're able to show that how they have had so much success here and they can replicate that in the US, it's well worth trying.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. I think what's interesting is whether platforms like Thought Machine will genuinely enable big legacy banks to to, to genuinely enhance the service that they offer to end users. I, I think, you know, there's a growing thought that actually what makes a bank unique, they're sort of USP, actually aren't the mechanics of the the banking service. You know, it's um, it's that customer service bit, it's the customer data, it's the deposit. So if through something like Thought Machine or some of the platforms that Sarah's already um, very gracefully rattled off, if we see a, a move towards that more generally are we going to see an actual rise particularly in the incumbent space towards better user experiences
1: you mean because i mean the, uh, the point of this right is to to enable better user yeah, absolutely. experiences um mm, i mean it's just such a tough thing to do isn't it Replatform your core and that's why you have a look at the big guys who are doing you know uh greenfield banks you know on the side to test it out and try it out first um I actually am most interested in the kind of the community banking space, that kind of, I guess, mid-sized bank, I would say. Um, particularly, and, and I've said this before, but particularly when you look at the kind of socioeconomic climate and um, people's interest in um, ethical and, and social uh, interest, I suppose that's the wrong word. But um, you know, people are starting to care more about their local communities. They're starting to care more about what's going on around them. They're starting to care more about you know, the the money I put in my bank. Where's that being invested? Is that money being invested in firearms or or climate uh, you know oil production or tar or fossil fuels or whatever so um i think the big prize is the community banks uh, i don't know what thought machines strategy is but i think if they can get that right that would be really interesting to see what innovation is generated off the back of that
3: something like I hear different numbers, but sort of seven, eight thousand banking institutions across the U.S. So there's a huge market if you can crack it. Um, I think whilst experience is part of the the driver, I think the sheer economics of delivering banking has to be a big driver. I just don't know how financially viable it is going to be to be a legacy bank um, over a period of time. Um, what's interesting in a in a, uh, in a period of time where recently HSBC are having to kind of cut back dramatically, uh, thirty five thousand um, layoffs at HSBC. Uh, whilst the big US banking groups are still doing well, actually, they all still have uh, wholesale banking arms. Uh, and and, and I, I don't have great insight, frankly, on the relative contribution of their retail and wholesale activities. But my, my guess would be, um, in the kind of uh, interest rate environment in which we're operating, um, sort of effectively almost 0% interest rates, um, making great margins just in, you know, as a... A kind of a retail bank, I think, is is just got to get harder and harder, and so I think that that kind of economics imperative has to figure as well as the customer service piece in my mind.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, I think the interesting thing about um, Thought Machine is 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 the idea that the services are provisioned um, by way of smart contracts, which allows Thought Machine and its banking customers to personalize, um, to to segment, and 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 maybe eventually, actually, to to the customer
1: level. Are they are they all done that way? Because that's my believe question. So? I'm not sure. Because um, one of the things that I was just going to say is that uh, you know having Atom Bank as a client is is great for them and good on Atom Bank, but I'm not sure that's going to make much of an impact when you go to the US and say we've got Atom Bank as a client. If you say we've got Lloyd's Banking Group as a client, all of a sudden you might become a little bit more interesting. Um, but I don't actually know what they've done for. Lloyd's. I don't know if that's public or if I've missed it. Um, But I was just thinking about in terms of breaking through those kind of like rock solid brands that everybody in America recognizes, um, you know, that could be a way in for them, I suppose, going, look what we've done for Lloyd's and look. How, yeah. what what transformational effects it's had in the UK. A
0: hundred percent. And I, I I think going back to, uh, to Ed's point as well, I think there is there is a broader recognition now among incumbent banks as well that they are increasingly being held back by their own tech. So if they can cherry pick different products and services and, and Sarah, to your point, migrations are notoriously <clears throat> difficult and particularly if you're looking at any sort of big bang approach, but it means that you can take a phased approach, you can almost do it product by product um, and start to migrate customers that way and ultimately then maybe you can start to the move, move the needle on financials. Yeah. Okay, there we're gonna take a break. We'll be back very shortly, um, do join us. This podcast is brought to you by Stake, the digital brokerage app bringing you unrivaled access to the U.S. market. Invest in over 3,500 U.S. stocks and ETFs, including game-changing companies like Google, Amazon, and Tesla. Trading is instant, direct, and commission-free, and with a fully digitized sign-up, you'll be in the market in minutes. So visit hellostake.com or search stake trade to seize the U.S. market's $31 trillion worth of opportunity today. Now, onto to the international news. Our next story comes from Finextra and concerns the World Health Organization calling for contactless amidst the coronavirus. The agency is discouraging cash handling to minimize the virus's transmission The call comes as China and Korea begin to disinfect used bank bills. A World Health Organization spokesperson noted that banknotes are particularly susceptible to viruses and bacteria and advising readers to avoid them altogether and to wash their hands upon contact. Coronavirus, like, I mean, we've talked earlier about the sort of impact on stocks, um, you know, we've talked about, well, we haven't talked, but there's a lot of fears around the longer-term impact on the global economy. Um, most woundingly for me, the latest Bond film was delayed mm-hmm. until November. It was due to be released in April. Sarah, most woundingly for the two of the Six Nations, rugby games have been postponed.
1: Sad Flybys
0: time. finally collapsed. You I know mean, that would have happened anyway. Yeah. But this is real, right? And this is impacting every aspect of, like, our day-to-day lives. Um this is kind of scary. I mean, I've been washing my hands roughly every 20 seconds for about 20 seconds. What <laughs> do we
1: think? Uh, can I make the point about money and then we'll talk on yeah, some, like, sure, sure, more, sure. You know, profound mm. meta questions about hoarding and you know life as we know it on Earth ending. Um, just, I'm mean, just intrigued. You know everybody has switched to polymer notes, or we're switching to polymer mm. notes. Before we had plastic paper money, we had cotton paper money and wood-based paper money. Now wood-based paper money has some um, natural anti like viral and bacterial properties so I would just be really interested to know if there's a difference between the nations that are using polymer currency those that are using cotton-based currency and those that are using wood-based currency and that is niche I know but I just thought I'd bring it up
3: I, I think you're like some sort of paper money historian or something <laughs> I'm so impressed with that knowledge
1: I am a historian and I regularly deliver a presentation on the history of retail uh, oh, banking go. that goes back to the ancient Greeks but my point still stands.
3: Can I just, uh, at the risk of, of giving away the, uh, the a peek behind the curtain on the show, there are show notes here, and I don't know who's put these show notes together, that in um, in New York, a study found 397 distinct bacterial species crawling across the bills. That's, I, that's I, great, I, but I, coronavirus I is a
2: virus.
3: Well, <laughs> and again, do, do, do bacteria kind of crawl? I, I, I don't know. It seemed um, alarmist, perhaps.
2: So I'm completely for getting rid of um, paper money and coins. So if the coronavirus is the way to make that happen, then let it be. I think going about using contactless, um, paying by, I mean, I can't remember the last time I used my actual debit card. If I think about it, I'm using my Apple Pay to pay for things. Um, And that's even safer because that's touching less things. Um, Except you're and again you're touching more things when you have to use the self-service
1: checkout so you're actually touching screens that more people have touched than the £5 note that might be in your pocket Uh, top tip on this apparently you're supposed to use your knuckles uh, rather than the pads of your fingers
2: or maybe carry around those iPad pens So you're using your own
0: one. Can you imagine being that person at the self checkout with a stylus?
2: I feel weird, weird enough using my knuckle, and I
1: think it was the the m one isn't as sensitive as the Tesco one or whatever. And I was like literally knocking on the screen. Yeah,
0: you should know that I'm going to do that, and I'm going to so, take the the correct. knuckle. I I do wonder though, to your to your point about the 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 iPhone. I wonder how many distinct types of bacteria are crawling across your phone.
1: Oh, that's moment. definitely yeah, three hundred and
3: ninety-seven well. <laughs> at least.
1: Um, on the point about like driving cash. Uh, cashless payment methods. I agree with it in principle, but we always have to be careful about vulnerable populations. And there are some people who choose not to use electronic payments. There are some people who can't use electronic payments. There will be members of the population who, um, you know, have mental health difficulties and whatever and use cash because it's easier to manage their spending. So um, great, good advice but what about the vulnerable populations that can't necessarily use contactless payments for whatever reason, and then do you make a vulnerable population even more vulnerable because they're the ones who are left with the bacteria-crawling notes? Um, so it, should, it just, I always feel like, I, I just sound like a broken record, but there should be that caveat whenever we talk about moving towards cashless societies and when we talk about like moving towards electronic payments, that there has to be some provision for that.
4: Completely. Although cashless uh, naturally, debit cards and others, are common, but the next phase, the whole piece is it'll be biometrics-based. So when we get to that stage, it'll even be cleaner. You don't need to tap anything.
1: Yeah, I was reading about um, facial recognition payments, so not even a thumbprint. It's just you go in, and I think they're doing it in Vietnam, and they're trialling it in China as well, and you just go in and they scan your face, and your face is linked to your payment account.
4: Very much so. It's becoming more common.
1: I'm not sure what you do with identical twins.
4: That is a good question. Joint accounts. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, okay, so, but um, taking, I suppose, back, Sarah, to uh, the the meta stuff. So there's now 115 cases of coronavirus in the UK, 25 in London. I think going back to the point we made, we we, we, we sort of mustn't forget that um, we're in a bubble in London with fintech and all of these digital payment um, tactics. I think it's a really important point, just, just going back on the human angle, is that... Um, there is a direction of travel, I think, you know, globally towards cashless and that actually we need to remember that it is those vulnerable populations that um, are probably disproportionately affected Um and to put that on a
1: sorry, to put that on a bigger scale, they're disproportionately affected by that, but they're also disproportionately affected by the virus, and then they're also again disproportionately affected by things like shortages, like panic buying. Like I won't give the story about me trying to buy pasta last night again, but those populations who can't make it to multiple shops, who can't buy things online on Amazon, who can't you know order things again, they, it, it, this this kind of um, scenario just just exacerbates the the trouble that those people can get into, and not to fault their own.
3: I think when I read this, uh it just occurred to me that if somebody is not yet using digital payments, they're not using contactless, is this the thing that's going to change it? And 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 you know, there are just Constant stories that that showcase um, the you know the opportunities and the, and the downsides of, of contactless and not using it. Um, I can't see this moving the needle if if uh, if I'm honest.
1: It might do. I mean, I've seen people wash their hands that I've you know have freely admitted to never having washed their hands in the morning. You know, so something I always do: get off the get into the office, get off the tube. First thing you do is wash your hands. Yeah. And I said this to somebody the other day, and they went, "Oh yeah, I should do that." So and now those people are washing their hands more. So maybe it will have an impact on whether they but, use contactless because they're thinking about it.
3: That's uh, either retailers who are Cash, you know, running cash businesses today thinking, okay, I no longer want, want, want to receive that. And so I'm going to get a a, a POS system or something yeah. in um, or, but but it's, you know, where are people using cash, right? And I guess what we're saying is probably around the table. We don't have a good sense of that.
0: No, but what is is interesting um, from the retailer's perspective is that there are um, cost implications of um, accepting cash. There are security implications of accepting cash. So we are seeing retailers. And again, look, we are in a bubble in London. Um, But we see a lot of retailers now that are are, are moving, you know, that they have signs on the till that say, you know, no cash, we're card only. Um, But I I think taking it back just to the the coronavirus point at a a higher level just for a second. So the um, health officials in the UK now have sort of moved beyond the first phase of their plan to tackle the virus. We've gone beyond contain. We're largely saying that didn't work. Um, So we're now moving on to delay. So this is obviously a small measure, but we're likely to see a lot more so things that could involve like banning big events closing schools uh, discouraging the use of public transport so this is really hitting our day-to-day lives
4: very much so for what it's worth we have seen an uptick in digital services and I guess we've read online the likes of zoom and others it becoming mm-hmm. more popular but home delivery services digital accounts digital payments and even things like car rentals you might think well, why would you need why would car rentals have an uptick? Well, if you're not looking to catch a train, you're going to look into rent's car. So it's not like a magnitude of difference, but a noticeable uptick. Um, and it's only going to continue to develop.
0: Quite possibly. Okay, I'm going to move us on to our next story, which comes from BBC News. And this concerns Klarna posting their first ever deficit as buy now, pay later grows. So the buy now, pay later sector grew by nearly 40% last year, as the Swedish fintech announced a $93 million loss, the first in its 15-year history, which actually in and of itself is is, is quite extraordinary. Um, the BBC reports that 7 million people have used Klarna, a 100% increase from last year. WellPay reports that the sector will double its market share by 2023, making it the UK's fastest growing online payment method. Other companies... In the space include ClearPay and LayBuy. But these companies, including Klarna, have also been controversial. So complaints since. Complaint Service Resolver has faced 10,000 inquiries about them since September 2018. So I'm interested in this story. I'm, I'm interested about. Specifically, what is it that we're worried about? Are we worried about the debt implications? Are we saying that buy now, pay later services have less rigorous credit decisioning models? Or are we just alarmed by the growth numbers? Because the tone in all of these articles is inherently negative and I don't get it.
1: Yeah, so just to this point this article was really interesting so the headline on the the actual um, the actual story was um, Buy now pay later growing fast amid debt fears mm-hmm. the body of the article was about the world pay research which talked about different Payment methods. They didn't mention. You know it, it, that wasn't that wasn't the, the, the point. They actually to your your point, Ross. They just used it as a catch. Like everyone's worried about buying our pay later. I mean, there's two points here. One, I'm not worried about Klarna's loss. I think that that is going to happen when you expand like that. And I also think that you know, AliPay or Am Financial just took a stake in them, so I think they'll be all right financially, at least the foreseeable. Um, when it comes to the uh, the kind of the point about are they dangerous are they damaging or not it's really interesting because actually the UK is quite late to this so I was over in New Zealand a couple of years ago um, and speaking to to, to people uh, younger people but they all use a service called Afterpay, which is exactly the same thing, but it's it's an Australian competitor. Uh, it may have been, originated in New Zealand, moved to Australia. You'd have to fight that out between the Antipodean countries. But anyway, it's local, it's domestic. Um, and they all use that. But I think what people conflate is that buy now, pay later doesn't mean credit. So Klarna will say that not a single person has ever had their credit rating dinged because um, it's, you know, you, you, you buy now, pay later. You have set terms to pay it in. And, and, and if you don't miss a payment, great. And they say that most people don't miss a payment. If you do miss a payment, they basically say that they just talked to you about it. Uh, Lay is more explicit. LayBuy does do affordability and credit checks, but if a shopper defaults on their payments, LayBuy works with them to resolve that default. If they don't respond within 45 days, then their credit score is adversely impacted. But again, that affects very, very few people. So I think there is um, a misconception about what these products actually do because there's installment payments and then there's off extending credit. So Klarna actually only has one sort of licensed credit product and that's financing, Klarna financing, but not not that many people use that. They just generally split the payments over six months, 12 months. And that's exactly the same as having a credit card, but you pay off every month, you pay off the minimum amount every month. So I think there's, I think there's a, a lot of confusion about what these products do and how they work.
0: I agree. And, and and that's the major point for me is that I think these services are much more fit for purpose in terms of how people spend and and transact now online. So the fast fashion Um, companies is the obvious example how people typically tend to shop at these retailers ASOS top shop Um, online as they buy large volumes of clothes and the knowledge that they're going to send most of it back now something like um, Kleiner that allows you to pay once you've returned those items and only pay for what you keep to me in the digital age feels much more fit for purpose than having to pay for all of those items up front and then wait up to 30 or 60 days whatever the terms are to get your refund.
4: I
1: will say that I'm guilty of having misunderstood them for quite a long while and having misunderstood them on the podcast as well But and and thinking that it was actually bad that they went after uh, retailers like ASOS because my brain was going, if you don't have the money for for that dress, you shouldn't be buying that dress. But actually, the point you just made, it suddenly hit the penny dropped the other day and it's actually much more like the system they use in parts of Europe where you don't actually pay for anything you buy online all arrives at your front door you decide what you want to keep decide what you want to keep you send that back and then you actually pay for what you keep it's, in your it's house it's the
0: digital equivalent of going into a store
1: and trying things on yeah do you think that's the big hook this this principle that Ross explained.
3: Yeah,
1: um, I think it might well be. When you think about the merchants they're working with, it's it's JD Sports, yeah. it's ASOS, it's, it's it's not fridges.
0: It's solving for a real customer problem, both on the 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 customer side and the retailer side, because I believe Kleiner also takes the risk for non delivery.
3: Yeah, I I, it, I think there's still a there there are some small. Uh, speed bumps to access the service. It's interesting. I don't know if anyone's um, taken up the um, the similar offer that's now embedded in in Amazon um, as, a, as a part of their offer. And of course, because Amazon already have all of your details, actually, they can seamlessly offer that service. And actually, well, kind of, why wouldn't you? Because you pay the same price either way. Um, that just sort of makes sense in terms of managing one's outgoings. Um, I, I totally get the point about being able to um, triclides on, return them, and, and not not have that loss of of, of kind of access to cash. Um, there is a, a soft uh, a soft credit score which goes on, um, which is in, in, in impacted by the time of night you make a purchase as well. I, I which I assume yeah, no, is about people so, kind of so, coming from they the have, pub and,
0: They have a huge amount of um, of sort of social data that they put in there. You know, hundreds and hundreds of point and points, and there are a lot of um, research that support these. Um, this thinking that you are more likely to default if you are uh, making the application on a certain device or if you are transacting at a certain time of day or night. Um, And they're all built into typically what are sort of proprietary um, risk decisioning models that, as far as I can tell, give much more rich insights around affordability than just doing a hard search in a credit score that's typically 60 or 90 days um, out of date.
3: Yeah, but 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 I think at its core, it's still it, it's a, it's a form of credit, right? It's a, it's allowing access to something you want today, but and you're going to kind of pay it off over time. I, I think that that can't be without its dangers in terms of uh, managing finances for individuals.
2: I think what's quite what fascinates me about Klarna is how glamorous it comes across. I mean, at the moment, if you look around London, the marketing campaign does not look like what their product is. It. I mean, I can't even remember what the advert is. All I, all I remember is this glamorous pink You're branding. so right.
0: And it's typically like smooth with lots of O's. Oh,
2: it looks great. They had a pop-up store uh, recently, and
1: I can't remember what it was, somewhere in London. And the pop-up store was giving you like free gifts from ASOS and a free manicure and, you know, cakes wow. and biscuits and sweets. And it's a payment method with a pop-up store.
2: Yep. And it, it's so interesting. And when you look at the retailers that they support, like ASOS, Shoe, Shoe, um, yeah, it, in my opinion, I think what's happening is that it's changing culture. I think Klarna's marketing campaign has changed the way that we're shopping, and it's really interesting how in the UK it's very, it's it's normal to buy something and pay for an instalment, whereas maybe when you go to France, it's actually less common. Um, similar to how we buy cars here, like I think it's around eighty percent of cars, brand new cars being bought, is on finance. But if you go to France, it's significantly lower. And I've, yeah. Klarna's branding. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Just so a small disclosure, we are partners of uh, Klarna's, but I think the problem that's highlighted here is the impulse buying issue and that if it is a car and a fridge and things you do maybe once every few years, is is different thing until it's almost everything, shoes, clothes, bags, whatever it may be, and that there may come a point at which whether it's regulation, better education, and things of that nature come into play. But I have seen similar platforms do a really good job on this installment payments and facilitating options, such as Payjoy in the US. If you can't afford a smartphone and you need a smartphone to work, you're able to buy one, pay it off over 12 to 24 months. There is less of a credit score issue there. They have an app installed, pre-installed on the smartphone that just switches the smartphone off if you can't repay it. So it's essentially building security for those who don't have a credit file. And there are many examples where it can be a positive thing. But the the nub of it is that there's this impulse buying issue and the extent to which it is so frictionless, whether that will become a problem. It's a really good
0: point. I think the the convenience benefit from the customer perspective is is there for all to see, but uh, you do need to manage it tightly so that you don't end up with problems further down the line. Okay, our next story comes from the BBC and concerns Greenpeace blockading Barclays branches. So the environmental group obstructed entrances at 97 bank locations on Monday. It was protesting Barclays oil and gas investments, which it claims are among the biggest in Europe. Branches were disrupted in cities such as London, Edinburgh, Cardiff, and Belfast. So um, I guess this is... um, A sort of awareness campaign. How successful do we think this is going to be in terms of encouraging a a move away from investments in fossil fuels from big banks towards more sustainable options?
1: I mean, for a start, Barclays has been targeted twice over the last three years by Greenpeace. I think Greenpeace have it in for Barclays because they're certainly not the only bank that do this. At the same time, uh, a couple of weeks ago, JPM, uh, JPMorgan Chase, uh, outside of its annual investor meeting, was also targeted by another group, which basically said the same thing, you're not doing enough um, when it comes to, to reducing your, your impact on climate change. Um, look, I don't think it's the protesters that are going to force the arm or the change within the banks. I think it's the markets, the economy, and if, if it comes to it, the regulators, because they've certainly hinted that You know, the only thing that would make them change from a, a customer perspective would be if customers started shifting their money away to people who had you know, actually not made commitments but gone through with them because that's the other thing with this area is that every big bank in the world has made a commitment, but have they done it? Have they actually gone through with it? Talk about ESG, talk about all the different types of rating out there. You know, that a lot of them um, obfuscate like kind of what that rating actually means. So I think, uh, I don't think it's going to make a blind bit of difference to Barclays, to be honest. I think they'll have to do it anyway for a load of other reasons. But they're certainly not the only bank. And I would like to know what Greenpeace has got against Barclays particularly.
0: I think ESG is such um, such an interesting one because... ESG for me just speaks to long-term sustainability and long-term profitability. Mm. I mean, fossil fuels aren't sustainable and we all know this.
1: That's why they're going to have to do it eventually. Yeah. But I think the point being that some people don't really necessarily understand quite how long that's going to have to take. Sure. You can't just do it and say, we're not going to do that anymore. That's it. That's the end.
0: Yeah. And and I feel like right now in investment prospectuses, ESG is essentially a couple of pages of a forward um, at the beginning of a couple of hundred page report. I mean, until it's washed right through... And that becomes the norm, I think. I think we're a long way off. Um, I guess, Sarah, picking up on your point about um, it, nothing's going to happen until it really comes from that sort of that, that, that bottom-up perspective and, and, and people start voting with their feet. I think this, to me, now is more impactful than it's ever been in terms of what Greenpeace are doing, because I think that public discourse has shifted, right, around climate change. I think people are now more aware. What they might not be aware of are who are the brands that are investing in or are helping to sort of sustain that fossil fuel industry. So I think shining a spotlight on it now actually might have more of an impact than it might have had in the past.
3: I think um, getting the right balance if you're Extinction Rebellion or Greenpeace or something here is really hard. I think if you if you protest somewhere out of the way and cause no inconvenience at all, the likelihood is you don't actually get a message across. Um, if you shut down Heathrow for the day or something, everybody hates you, but actually... It does raise the awareness, um, and and I kind of think it actually it is making an impact. I, I think it's, it's distasteful to go and dig up lawns in Cambridge and dump the turf outside banks, um, but actually it makes the news. And 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 my own view is that it of, of all of the uh, inputs that we're getting to our thinking about climate change, um, these guys are actually making an impact and making a positive difference in a what one could see as quite an unpalatable but potentially necessary way.
4: The, the- Good thing is that it's no longer a fringe issue, as you were saying. I wonder whether five years ago, I'm sure similar things happened, what our reactions would have been. Whereas now, climate change has become mainstream. The same happened with arms investments, same with tobacco. And now there's a question of, you know, this is peaceful means and pressure, and that it's getting us talking about it right here. And in all likelihood, there will be more of these. It's naturally always, uh, I'm sure, inconvenience to hardworking people who work at these branches, and it's an inconvenience. It's not always easy to be uh, sort of, as you say, if there's no friction, then there's no attention. But I think raising, I don't think that the market is going to fix this one. I don't think that uh, people will vote with their feet just because they have so many things on their mind that as important as this is, there are a dozen other things. We just talked about the virus. There's always uh, many other things. And so anything that gets attention, a greater proportion of people are concerned. So it is likely to have a marginal yet still a material uh, impact.
2: I completely agree. I think we're not going to see change overnight, but the fact that like you say we're talking about it, it's making the headlines it shows that you know people do care now. We do care where the banks are spending and investing our money, while it's in the past like it it wasn't something that we really spent time thinking about, but I think um to <laughs> to be the, to have the complete opposite um view um, barclays are doing something about it in some sense um they have been reducing the amount they've invested in fossil fuel and yeah that's that's not good enough because in an ideal world we want them to respond with this by completely turning that off and i think that isn't the reality of it um but they are increasing their investments into um the environment and more um social financing and i think over time they will have no choice but to keep increasing those better investment choices. Um, And it's protests like this, and similar to Extinction Rebellion, I think, without us shouting about it, um, we won't be able to speed up that process of reducing investments in areas that aren't acceptable to areas that are, I think... Um Oh, sorry. I was going to say back to your earlier point,
1: though. Um, the reason a lot of these banks are pulling out of, you know, investments in fossil fuels is that fossil fuels are performing incredibly badly. Yep. <laughs> and so, <that's> that. <laughs> there's that. Exactly <right>. There's, there's <laughs> literally to your point about long-term
4: sustainability. Like,
1: yep. yes, yes,
4: it is having an impact. Fracking is a different one. Fracking is doing well. Uh,
1: yeah. Okay. Yes. Fracking is a different one. Um, I I just I'm just trying to put the kind of the other lens on it that the banks are still going to try and try and make money and actually a certain amount of what they say. Um, you can be cynical about this from many different perspectives, but a certain amount from what they say is actually just good business sense for them as well. So it looks great because they can say, Look at us, we're reducing investment in shale and gas and, and oil, no. but um also thank God for that we can get out of that without anybody kicking up with us.
0: And, and and one of the most impactful things that's probably still yet to come is um a what might be a you know, a huge wealth transfer from parents to millennials, which have proven to be a more, um, I would say, socially aware generation. And I think that could be a driving factor in terms of moving away from um, fossil fuels and, and, and other things like that and, and, and towards more sustainable investments. Okay, I'm going to move us on. Our and finally story this week comes from the BBC News, and it's a feel-good story. It concerns payments boss paying his entire staff a $70,000 minimum salary. So Gravity Payments CEO Dan Price used to make $1.1 million per year. Then in 2015, he learned his friend in Seattle was struggling to pay rent on a $40,000 salary. Price figured his employees were facing similar problems. So he cut his own salary and mortgaged two of his houses to introduce a seventy thousand dollar minimum salary for a staff of one hundred and twenty. Now interestingly, three years later the company is more than double the value of the payments it processes. Junior staffers are doing more, while senior staffers have found their workloads have reduced. Price still makes the minimum salary a gravity, and he says it's not like it's easy to just turn down, but my life is so much better. There's a couple of other sort of interesting things that he said that I just want to call out. So he said people are starving or being laid off or being taken advantage of so that somebody can have a penthouse at the top of a tower in New York with gold chairs no prizes for guessing who he's having a bar out there we're glorifying greed all the time as a society and our culture and you know the forbes list is the worst example bill gates has passed jeff bezos as the richest man who cares i mean good on good on this guy
2: definitely right? love this guy
0: yeah This is a really, really good story, and what I really like about this story is that a couple of years later, all of the sort of, like, important metrics support what he's done in terms of productivity, um, in terms of business performance. I I, I just really like this story.
4: Is it a feel-good story or a feel-bad story?
0: Yeah, sure. Okay, fine.
4: I mean, Henry Ford did this more than 100 years ago, right? He paid double, and he showed that productivity increases and everything else increases. It is... The, not everyone feels good about it. I think Fox News says this is he is a lunatic of all lunatics. Yeah, I think uh, Fox News is the lunatic. I, mean, I was going to say,
1: did they call him a communist? Or did <laughs> no, someone else far. did. Uh, so,
0: so, so actually, Hussein, just to support your point, so since 1995, the top 1% of earners in the United States have had a greater share of national wealth than the bottom 50%. The gap is continuing to widen. So that's only since 1995. Before that, that wasn't the case. But in 2015, CEOs in the US earned 300 times more than the average worker. And it's not just the US. So in the UK, bosses of the FTSE 100 companies now earn 117 times more than the average worker. So his point about we glorify greed, it's demonstrable.
4: Yeah, very much so. Everywhere you look. And there this is topical, right? It's election season, and it is a. It's wonderful that he is being celebrated. It's just a shame that this is a celebration. It should hopefully become more of the norm. Uh, there has now been precedents of in the US uh, members of Congress actually paying all their staffers a living wage equivalent. In the UK, we have a new MP, and she has done something similar. So, the hope is that this will be a sign of things to come.
1: It, it is really interesting to, to your point that um, to your point of saying that. Productivity has just steadily declined in most of Western Europe for the last hundred or so years. Um, I'm not, i not, haven't got full, full uh, uh, sight on on how long it's been. But
4: sorry, do you mean productivity or, or salaries? I think this,
1: I think productivity has this, declined.
4: This talks about productivity slightly increasing and yet wages stagnating.
1: So, so I disagree with the point that productivity has been rising steadily. Because if you actually look at kind of, particularly if you look at the UK and the US and actually kind of what you measure by productivity, like how many hours people are putting in and what we're getting out of it.
4: They're doing few hours, but producing more.
1: Th- these guys are, yes. But like generally across the board, like we are working more hours and producing less. You, do, particularly if you measure that in GDP is, is kind of what I'm thinking of here. Yeah. So my, my point being that if you, if you, Bring, turn that down and bring the salaries back up. It's the same to me as the idea of allowing people to work a four-day week or providing them with, you know, flexible working, that kind of thing. I agree with you completely. Um, it's, I, I think a certain amount of it is, you know, it is literally like you can now afford not to worry about working a second job so you can pay your rent. Yeah. And a certain amount of it is just having the mental headspace. Oh my god, I'm not worried anymore.
0: It is so, so important that when we do stories like this on the show that we focus on the the human aspect and actually how it plays out in, in people's day-to-day lives. So To your point exactly, Sarah, so employees have reported that they've been able to focus more on their health, losing on average £50, helping their parents pay off debt, like all of these really positive human outcomes, 10% of Gravity employees can now buy a house in Seattle. Before this, it was 1%. And he tells a really um, nice story about how he gathered his staff together and gave them the news. And he said, at first, it just didn't land because people couldn't process it. And that he had to tell them again. And then it was kind of like people just 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 couldn't believe it. Like one third of his uh, his staff, their salary doubled immediately. Mm.
3: Amazing. It's amazing. life changing. I, I concur. This is you know a, a super story. I think the other really interesting piece is for those uh, employees who might otherwise feel they could go out into the market and earn more than seventy thousand dollars and yet choose to stay with the company, uh, which I think speaks a lot to purpose and culture um, and. You know, I think again, we all we all work with a bunch of different firms, and those that have a really clear purpose, where the where the staff feel that they're making a difference, that they're doing something hugely positive, then there's a tr- people happy to trade that off for for hard cash, you know, to some degree. Um, i, I kind of love love this idea i you know i, I worry about or i you know that the harder problem to solve is where you've got really scarce skills um you know you guys are employing coders and you know everybody around the table is having to kind of do that there will be certain skills that are you know just hard to come by and um the question is how 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 far can you stretch by, by offering kind of great purpose and, and, and a great business to be with um if somebody could otherwise go and earn three hundred thousand dollars you know w- what's the point at which they kind of say i'm sorry that's just too big a compromise for me to make to come and work here
0: yeah,
2: well. I, I completely agree I think I love the principle I'm all for it um, but I do think that it's something that's more possible in a company let's say a tech company that the skill set around the table are similar maybe scarce maybe not um, and maybe there's like 200 people but how does that scale to 2000 people where you might have people working on a shop floor in comparison to someone in an office managing the finances of those shops like I th- I think it's probably, I think it's a principle that's more likely to succeed in a smaller company environment and a company environment where the skill sets are more similar. But I think, think, sorry, I was going to say to the point that the
1: 70,000 is a minimum. Yeah. So so you could still pay your chief engineer, yeah. 300,000 sure. or whatever to keep him at a market rate. But the point yeah. is you're, you're not paying those people who are typically viewed as being low-skilled, whatever yeah. that means. I'm yeah. doing invisible air quotes
4: again. But I, I, think, I
0: think your point is that the model's easier to prove in particular sectors.
4: Yeah. It, it's naturally the, in a smaller tech company. It's more doable. Most of the team are highly skilled anyway. But the point around, this is sort of the uh, CEO's, your point around making 300 times more than the average worker. The Bezos example... In that, you know, now one of the richest, if not the richest in the world, mm-hmm. the, the issue with Amazon workers getting paid so little, mm-hmm. there has been social pressure in the last year or two. And he has had to ensure that even your average uh, Amazon worker ha- is being paid a minimum wage, if hopefully at some point a living wage. But it's another point, just like the last story of social pressure. The more and more stories there are like this, the more there will be pressure on, on all to be able to do so. I agree. I,
0: I, I think what was um, what was quite funny, though. He said, looking back a number of years later, so he came out with this, um, or came up with this idea based on a study he read by um, the great behavioral economist Daniel Kahneman about how much money an American needs to be happy. And he went away with, in such enthusiasm, he crunched the numbers, came up with seventy thousand, revisited the study a couple of years later, and actually read it through and realised that the amount that was uh, that was suggested in the study was 75. <laughs> so, you know, hey ho. But it just, it's really nice to, to sort of finish the show on a really human, um, a really positive human story. And on that, that does wrap up this week's new show. Thank you so much to all of our guests. Where can people find out more
4: about you? Farhana, we'll start with you.
2: Um, to learn more about Flux and myself, you can find us on triflux.com.
4: Great. Awesome. Hussein? Well, so I'm Hussein Kasai on Twitter
3: or on Fido. Ed. Ed Burks on Twitter or uh, at uh, zero.com. And Sarah.
1: You can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kuczynski.
0: And as for me, you can find me on Twitter at RossGallagher07. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast, and please don't forget to leave us a review. It really does help, and we really enjoy reading them. Speaking of which, if you know someone who loves fintech, who isn't listening to Fintech Insider, pass the pod along and tell them about the show. If you have any suggestions or feedback, do find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thank you very much. Goodbye.